0: enjoying the sermon series through the letter of James. If you have a Bible and want to turn there with me, that'd be great. You'll find it after Hebrews and before 1 Peter, towards the very back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have someone in the back of the room. would love for you to use that as we dig into God's Word uh, calling this series faith at work and it's much of what this little short letter does it's it's short and it's small in size but man it packs a lot of great counsel of God and biblical truths and uh it's just amazing to see how James is continuing to lift up this understanding that true saving faith goes to work it it honors God it looks to to mature and be sanctified and fight sin, and produce that fruit of the Spirit, and all the different ways that we're looking at that. Today, we're going to look at what that means and how that works for the area of slander and um, judging others. As we study chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, um, we really want to hold high the authority of the Word of God here and um, want to preach it faithfully. It's a a high call and one I take uh, very seriously and joyfully to get to do here at Disciples Church. Uh, Look with me at our passage today, James chapter 4, uh, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Look with me first at his opening words in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The Greek word here for speak evil translates speak against or better or more succinctly, to slander. To define slander, the definition of slander is a false tale or a report maliciously uttered. So it's, it's something that's not true with malicious intent. It intending to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens. Slander looks to hurt people, hurt their reputation, defame their character. It is a sinful tactic that people use in our flesh to gain position over another, to make another look bad maybe so we can look better, or it's just used as a tool of vengeance. You hurt me, so I'm going to try to hurt you, even if it means making lies about you, and defaming your character the ears of others. But what makes slander so toxic is that it needs nothing but a hateful spirit and a malicious tongue to wield its venom. The Proverbs are clear as to the horrific and hurtful effects of slander. Proverbs 16.28 says that it destroys friendships. Proverbs 18.8 speaks of the deep wounds that are created from slander. Proverbs 26:20 20 speak of how slander stirs up contention. Proverbs 6:19 says how it spreads strife. David testifies of the motivation of slander in his words in Psalm 41 verse 7, "All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst. For me, One of the realities that we must consider is just how casual our secular society is about slander. The lost world that surrounds us every day literally is so casual about it, they produce TV specials built around the idea of roasting or slandering people in the name of entertainment. While many people are maybe quicker to recognize the evil in murder, or abuse, or stealing, or false testimony, it seems like a true conviction of the wickedness and sin of slander is far from the minds of the unregenerate, of unbelievers, and sadly even among people who would claim to belong to Christ. And that is James' issue and why he's bringing it up. To point out, with straightforward rebuke, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. It's that clear. Don't do it. But because slander is still so quick to our tongues and to find its way into our homes or our workplaces or our neighborhoods, it is helpful for us to see and look a little wider at just how big of an issue it is, according to God's word, that we might do some real business this morning in elevating our understanding of the wickedness of slander and why it needs to be removed from our daily lives as we look to honor God and live by faith. You might be surprised to know that no other sin is more spoken of than slander in the Old Testament. Slander against God, slander against other people. A few places to see this, uh, Leviticus 19, 16-18, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or in places like in Psalm 15, 1 through 3 Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Consider the seriousness of our Lord in these words spoken in Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Maybe it's not as casual as we've made it out to be. Solomon wisely counsels not to associate with one who goes about slandering. Proverbs 20, verse 19. But it is not just the Old Testament that condemns the sin of slander. Jesus himself commands in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. If maybe today you're realizing, hey, I've had a pretty low view of the wickedness of slander. Can we just, in this single verse, recognize the company it keeps? Evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Someone you know called you and said, Someone I love was murdered today. What? Or our home was robbed or great sexual immorality has taken place in our home or my marriage has been adulterated do we see on the same level as those things someone is speaking slander maybe we should The Apostle Paul shared his grave concern for the practice of slander to the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians 12.20 For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish. You may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He emphasizes the need to put away sinful practice of slander to the church of Ephesus in another letter, Ephesians 4 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, church, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That we who are of faith and that faith is at work means Forgiveness for others, not malice and gossip and slander. He writes to the church in Colossae, uh, Colossians 3 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Peter says that we Christians are to put slander away in his letter, 1 Peter 2.1. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Church, let us take note that James' emphasis to not slander others is a call for our faith in Jesus to live out in our words that honor him and others instead of tear them down. The fruit of faith is a person who does not slander others. Thereby fitting with James' mega theme of faith, true faith, goes to work, remains at work. Our faith at work means we will not slander others. Let me point out a critical biblical clarity about what James is not saying here. When he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers... The clarity here is speaking evil. Slander is maligning someone with mistruths, with lies. Therefore, he is not saying that we do not say what is true when it comes to something that needs to be said in order to protect the testimony of the gospel or the reputation of his bride, the church. Specifically, it doesn't mean that we do not publicly rebuke someone who is walking in unrepentant sin. For example, Paul instructs the church to in Corinth to speak publicly about an unrepentant sinner who has already been warned privately but has not repented. We read this in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5. through It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, You are arrogant, ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I am already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is loving that they call him out publicly with truth. That is not slander. Let us not confuse the two. One more quick clarity on slander before moving on to James' emphasis on judging others. While we are not to practice slander, the reality is the sinful world, church, will slander you. Good and often. They will lie about you. And try to malign your character. Peter gives us great counsel when we are slandered, how to respond in the name of Jesus, the power of Christ. Instead of responding evil for evil or slander for slander, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May it be so. May our faith at work produce a steadfastness that does not revile, not return evil for evil or slander for slander. He continues in chapter 3 of this letter, 1 Peter 3, 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, but when, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I don't know if you've experienced this. I have. I've had great accusation wrought with lies made against me by which my flesh wants to scream correction of truth from the hilltop. And with good counsel and brothers around me, the humility uh, of a right response and an identity fixed in Christ and not on the opinions of others allowed me to navigate such things. But I, I... I'm telling you, that the temptation to act in the flesh in moments of great slander is real. So we need these truths of God's word, the fellowship of the brethren, the body of Christ to walk with us, and an ongoing maturity of our faith to respond rightly in a way that honors God. May our testimony in Christ to not slander and to process others' slanders in such a way show that Christ is our hope, that Christ is our identity, so much so that they who are dead and sinned might see the good news of Jesus and repent and believe and be saved. What a great gift that would be. Look at the second part of verse 11 with me. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. First thing you will notice Here, before we get into the meat of this second point is how heavy James is using the term brother. Multiple times in this one verse, he's talking about family. Not by birth family, but blood-bought family. The redeemed family of God. Other Christians who have been born again Slander and sinful judgment are the antithesis of what it means to love, support, protect, and care for each other as God's family. James adds to speaking against someone that we should not judge them. This falls in line with Jesus' straightforward teaching in Matthew 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged. We who are in Christ have been forgiven of our sins by our Holy Lord. have been given a great grace and pardon from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. The judgment of our sin was put on Christ. And it is in Christ that we are no longer under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament or the bounds of the Old Covenant, but are in a new covenant with God. One made so by his shed blood, as he testifies in the Lord's Supper with the disciples that night. We are under a new covenant and are now empowered in Christ to obey the moral law of God in all we do. Jesus emphasizes that the great commandment is a synopsis of the moral law of God, As stated in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the call of God for the way we would love him and others. So slander and a judgmental spirit violate the most important practice of loving God and loving others as given in the great commandment to put away love for God and others is to pick up plain judge over them in doing this we belittle the perfect nature of God's law this is what James means by speaks evil against the law and judges the law. To ignore the great commandment and instead play judge and jury is to essentially declare that God's law was or is not right or good enough. In this we become judges of his perfect law. This is a problem because it is not the role that we are called to play. James makes this clear in what he says next. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Our role as redeemed people of God is, as James has already declared it to be, that we would be doers of the law of God, not hearers only. And now not judges of the law. Doers of the law, not judges of the law. To stand as a judge and not a doer of the law is to claim a superior position to the law of God and not to be bound by it or subject to its authority. Our responsibility, church, as blood-bought, redeemed people, is to do what we couldn't do when we were enslaved only to sin. That is to do what God commands us. To do according to his holy word, the law of God. Humility is produced in the faithful of God, as we've been studying already in James. Not a judgmental spirit based on pride and sin. Instead, humility, humility and love. Even for those who fight sin all around you or those who are different from you. Take note. With me, what James says at the end of verse twelve, which is where we'll conclude today, I want to reach ahead and grab this into this part of the sermon. James four twelve, the second part says, "But who are you to judge your neighbor?" The key to this kind of judging, what kind of judging are we talking about? What is is a judgment ultimately of a person standing with God? We know this because of James' emphasis in verse 12 to say that there is only one lawgiver and judge, only one who is able to save and destroy. The kind of judgment James is compelling his listeners to not do is sinful, self-righteous judging and judging of those person's ultimate standing before God. It is the person who chooses to self-righteously judge another instead of love them. This is what he's condemning. The use of the word neighbor here is surely a reference to the call of God and the great commandment by which we are to love our neighbor. It is so easy, though, in our sin to become consumed with other people's issues and in selfish or self-righteous judgment stand over them. This is something we're to not do. Instead, let us love others and point them to the good news of saving grace that has freed us from the penalty of the law and empowered us to obey the immoral law. Now, all that said, I must slow down and address what James is not saying here. The reason why is the the calls of Scripture to not judge are potentially the most quoted scripture by the world of all time. That literally the most quoted passage in scripture is not John 3.16 or others that we might think. It's the declaration that we are to not judge others. The problem is, in a very misguided and and out-of-context way, the world mishandles that text. Because the call to not judge... Is not universal. There is specific and right judging that scripture calls us to do in practice. And so we must see this call to not sinfully judge or have a judgmental spirit separate from the other commands of all of Scripture and have Toda Scriptura, all the Scripture, inform us rightly. So let's look at three things that James is not saying here. Number one, James is not speaking against the biblical mandate that Christians are to rightly, properly, and necessarily exercise righteous judgment for the sins of other believers. Jesus commands us to judge with right judgment. So right there, there is either different kinds of judgment or the scriptures stand in contradiction, which they don't do. So the blanket statement of there is never any judgment that anyone should ever have for anyone else is a misunderstanding of Scripture entirely. It's a a stake the world wants to put down and thereby essentially not be held accountable for sin before a holy God. Judge with right judgment, Jesus says. John 7, verse 24. God's word is clear that we are to exercise righteous God-honoring judgment in lovingly pointing out the sins of our brother or sister in Christ. That it's not loving to leave them on a path of unrighteous practice of sin. Jesus said in Luke seventeen three, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It is loving to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ for sin. Thereby, the scripture does not teach that we're never to judge one another. We are to exercise right judgment for what is sin and what is not, and love each other enough to actually call each other out when we're running in folly. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Second Thessalonians three, thirteen through fifteen, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So this is the process of calling out a brother or sister in their sin to repentance, and sometimes there's a journey there, as we'll see Jesus give us a, a protocol for that in a moment. But It is loving to do that. So then how do we exercise the biblical commands to warn and admonish each other when we see them caught in sin? Very important key is righteous judgment and Christian accountability is not about being more concerned with everyone else's stuff before your own. Biblically, we're to start with ourselves and be honest about our own sin and activity. To be looking to practice repentance and confession of sin. Inviting others in that we're not hard to get to, but we're, we're saying thank you for loving me enough to point out what I'm not seeing. Matthew 7, 3-5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it does not say that we're not to love each other well and to be willing to call out each other's sin. The command at the end of the scripture is still to do that. It's just giving us good intention and attention to our own sin first. So we would not be hypocritical as those in the context of this teaching were pharisaical people who were completely not following God and his commands but were self-righteously pointing out everyone else's stuff. Can, Can I acknowledge a loophole I've heard people try to claim in why they as a Christian brother don't point out Or call out the sin of another Christian brother or sister. Because they're saying, hey, I've uh, I've got to make sure I'm dealing with the log of my own eye first. Right? Okay, well, that's good. So deal with it. And then do what it says, which is go then do what you're also called to do, which is call out your brother or sister. In other words, that doesn't get to be like the, hey, because I need to always make sure I'm dealing with my own stuff, and because I struggle with that, then therefore I never practice that with other people. (laughs) If you're the guy that never removes the log out of your own eye, then you're the unrepentant sinner that we need to be dealing with. Right? So there is no like weird loophole there where you're going to say, well, that's why I never do that. (laughs) Additionally, we must always want to receive accountability from others and gladly acknowledge that it is an act of love towards us. Solomon speaks of The one who throws off Christian reproof in Proverbs 5, 12-13 has regret, looking back, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to their instructions. Proverbs 27, 6 Faithful are the words of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's a false notion to think that oh, it's all love when we all just kiss all the time. No, it's actually truly loving when someone's willing to put the relationship on the line for the sake of loving you enough to point out what's hurting you or hurting your testimony in Christ. That's what that verse means. Faithful are the wounds of a friend to be willing to say stuff that's hard to say instead of kisses from an enemy. In all this, church, we are called to judge in love, in right judging of what is sin and what is not, those who are claiming to be brothers and sisters in Christ. The word tells us this is a gift to the church. It's a, it's a call of God on us to fight sin, protect the name of the gospel and the church. Number two, James is also not speaking against the biblical practice of pointing out an unbeliever's sin against God and his law. Jesus said his very reason for investing time with unbelievers was to call them in truth and love to repentance. The world has this notion that Jesus was really good at hanging out with really lost people. And that part is true. Prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors, those who were seen as the worst of the worst, lepers, Jesus would go spend time with them, but not just because he loved the party. Do you see that? Like That's the world's perspective. is Jesus was just this loving hippie who just really was good at befriending lost people. And in the name of love, never said anything hard to them. So listen to Jesus' words. Luke 5.32 I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He's not saying I came to like be their long time friend and never point out the fact that they stand under God's wrath because of sin. No. To call them sinners to repentance. Luke 13.5 I tell you but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. These are the words spoken to these unbelievers. Repent or perish. But that sounds more like the guy out on the street who the world says is really nasty for being so hard with his words. Not to say that all the guys in the streets do that in a God-honoring way. But can we see that the world's view of who Jesus is and how he works is not what he himself did or proclaimed. There is a loving way that we can point out another sin with the deep hope and aim of their repentance and then faith in Jesus. It's why we should befriend lost people. What is not loving is to leave someone in their sin when the gospel that we've been entrusted with sets them free. And the true gospel is not just Jesus' love and you should choose God. No, it is you are dead in sin and rightly separated from a holy God and rightly under his wrath. That is your condition apart from Christ. That is the front end of the gospel. We don't just talk about Jesus saves. Saves from what? Do they understand they're standing apart from, from Jesus in sin? There is a reality of speaking of what is sin that is on our on our lips when we're talking to unbelievers. It's it's just not with the goal of just judging them. It's with the goal of loving them enough to call them to repentance. And if it's Jesus, if it's God's will, then they will repent and believe. Maybe not that day, but another. It is not judgmental. It is loving when done in the context of gospel witness and calling unbelievers to repentance and faith in Jesus for salvation. Number three, James is also not speaking against the biblical mandate to practice Christian discipline on those who claim Christ but refuse to practice repentance of sin. There is often people who will say, I'm a believer in Jesus but will not take actual action to turn from sin, change their ways to honor God. Jesus himself gave us the the roadmap of what we are to do with that kind of person. Read his instruction with me, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him or her his fault between you and him alone, out of love. Can I just say, a lot of us needed to start doing that step better than we do. Shame on you for knowing there's sin in the camp or there's sin that's happened against you, and yet out of the name of just playing nice, you don't speak up to that person. Do you realize you're allowing disunity to exist in the body, to not deal with that, to not forgive or not to talk that out? It It is a practice, church. We need to be good at doing it is loving. It is right. Reading, continuing. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Praise God. If the response is, man, I see my sin. I'm sorry. I, I confess that. I, I, I don't want that to be my practice going forward. Forgive me. Awesome. Praise God. That's, that's all we're looking for. Okay. we move away from that practice? It's great. We could honor God. We could grow together. Awesome. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Because now what we're starting to see is a sign of, I really my convenience or my own, my own idea of what life should look like or what love should look like is what's really leading me right now, not God. And so I'm slow to repent of sin, and so I'm kind of doing my own thing. Or I'm saying no, I just disagree with you. So now there needs to be witnesses involved, and hopefully with the charge of witnesses, there is then repentance and returning to what is honoring God. And if not, then we're to take it to the church. Sometimes that's taking it to the leadership to involve elders. Sometimes it's taking it to the whole church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him beat you, a gentile or a tax collector. This is where separation, that in love, were to actually remove you from the church. So that in losing the fellowship that you've come to love, you would be woken from your drunken stupor of sin to finally confess your sin and repent. Which is good for you, good for the testimony of the gospel you represent and the church that you're claiming to be part of. If you never repent and continue on in your fleshly ways, then you essentially prove to have never been saved. Back to the whole arcing point of how James is talking about faith that goes to work. This is why I take time to speak of what James is not saying when he says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's because way too often people take that out of its context and say, see, any kind of judgment, any kind of speaking to someone else's sin, all bad. It's not true. It's not the teaching of Scripture. There's a sinful, self-righteous judgment to take on the role of the law or the judge that we are not to do. There's a judgmental spirit we are to put away And and where we see that is in a passage like Romans 14, 13. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Pull that verse out of its context. You say, see, do not pass judgment on anyone any longer. See, church, no judgment. But the context of that passage is about a very specific kind of judgment. A opinion type judgment. meaning, I don't think you look good in purple. Or, shame on you for wearing sandals. Or, well, that wasn't for you. The guy wearing sandals. Goes, oh, hypotheticals, man. No judgment. All right. I don't like the way she dresses. I'm not looking at anyone. This is going to go bad. Or, or the thing he does these kinds of opinion-based judgment, things that are not defined in Scripture as sin or not, in the economy of Scripture, the ways of Scripture, things that are truly matters of Christian liberty, not exercising tradition or anything else on each other. Uh, That kind of opinion-based judgment is not good for our own soul to be in that role. Uh, It's not good for our testimony, for sure. I think this is the kind of judgment that much of the world looks at and goes, what are you doing? And they're right, because we should have no business. This is what Paul says, let, there, let, for, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Christians for a long time have received a bad rap because of others who claim Christ, but are, are loud in judgment over things that are not sinful, but are matters of personal preference. So that, that's what Paul is saying in that Romans passage. We should no longer do. Let me, let me give you some testimony of my own self. I, I grew up in the church. And thereby, for those of you who did grow up in the church too, you might resonate with some of this. I grew up around some people who were really good at this kind of judgment. Um, and it rubs off on you. Um, some specific people that you know I really had some influence in my life. And, and as I began to mature in my faith, I began, by God's grace the work of the Holy Spirit, and even some brothers and sisters loving me enough to call me out on it. To say, you exercise your opinion way too much. So I had to go to prayer and seek the Lord and confess that and start to see the folly of it. In in earlier years of growing in my faith, and to actively, attentively watch my words and do business with the state of my heart when I wanted to verbalize my opinion in such a way where it would really be condemning to someone who had a different opinion. Not speaking of anything sinful, but matter of liberty. And I praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit in me, in this area, as I've come a long way. I praise God that that work happened before my kids got older, because I fear that... Um, there's some rubbing off on them and it's just practices in these ways. To be honest, I, don't, I believe that there's probably still some refinement to do there and grossly concerned at times about the model that is for those in my own house. To be mindful of not being overly opinionated about stuff by way of almost casting judgment. I pray that you would come to know this kind of Maturity as well in this area. This, is, I believe, is what James is getting after, is repentance from a judgmental spirit um, or an authority in being judgmental over people that is for the Lord and not for us. All that said, James is calling his audience to not practice a judgment that puts us over the law or declares final undisputed authority of a person standing before God. This we are to not do. Look with me at verse 12. He says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. By placing ourselves above the law and playing the role of ultimate judge, we essentially place ourselves above God, who is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. This is such a great sinful action. Now watch this. It resembles the actions of Satan. Satan. Now, as grand as that sounds, we must slow and realize any sin, any sin usurps the right and ultimate place of God in any situation. It is our thoughts or deed that makes war with what is good and God honoring. Sin seeks to dethrone God, remove him as the supreme lawgiver, and judge. Think about it in this way. This is what we're doing when we declare my way is better than God's way. I've essentially written a new law and I've taken the place of I get to be the judge of this situation. This is why we see in Scripture people will sin grossly against other people but then declare that ultimately that sin is against God. Consider David, who, in his adultery with Bathsheba, to satisfy his flesh, gross sin. Then has her husband murdered, killed, and war, gross sin. But later in the Psalms declares, Against you, speaking to the Lord, and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because he rightly sees that every sin ultimately is against God. Every sin belittles and condemns God's perfect law and usurps His authority. We who are saved and redeemed are under His authority and joyfully submit to His law. James' effort here is to wake up his listeners to this global reality. God alone is the sovereign ruler and judge over the entire creation. So we don't get smarter than him about how things should work. We don't do what a modern society is doing, which just says, you know what, I think we're we're kind of outgrowing the ancient text, and there's some modern reassessment we need to start to apply to God's written word. This is happening all around. Sadly, by people you probably know who profess Christ and yet are putting away the authority of Holy Scripture to satisfy the situations in their homes with loved ones or just in their heart's desire for the way they think life should work. I actually believe, the elders would agree with me, this is one of the greatest threats to you and our church in this time of of life. That practice of an authoritative new view that would rewrite or reinterpret what God's word clearly declares. God alone is sovereign ruler and judge over the entire creation. That includes the galaxies and the smallest micro atoms of all of creation. God alone makes the law of all things, and then is the one who will judge all of mankind by that law. He does this with utter perfection, and knows not just what he sees, but every heart and intention and thought of mankind. Church, do you see yourself rightly under the law of God and the authority of God? To think otherwise is to sinfully take on these very roles yourself. Finally, James says in verse 12, he who is able to save and to destroy. Speaking of God, there is one lawgiver and judge He who is able to save and destroy. God is the only one who is able to save and destroy. Think about that statement. Let's start with the latter first. God is the only one able to destroy because he is the righteous judge. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is justice. A very, very... Important scripture statement in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Only God can destroy a person in hell. Think about that. Who has the authority to do that? Only one. He who belongs to Christ should not fear the creation of God. This includes Satan. We should not fear Satan. Who Satan, who is rightly and fully under the authority of God's sovereign rule. Instead, we fear the one who reigns over all things. We honor him, we serve him. He is over all things, including suffering, including justice, including election of his creation. And a very sobering passage of great truth when we understand it rightly. Romans nine, twenty two and twenty-three. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's that phrase, destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. To be clear, the word destroy or destruction does not mean annihilation. It does not mean poof, you're gone. That would not be a right justice on the grossness of our betrayal of the holiness of God. No, the phrases of destruction or to be destroyed are of the eternal punishment we will face in hell for those who stand against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. There it is. So destruction does not mean annihilation. It's eternal It's away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I said it a few weeks ago, the greatest problem that you have is not cancer, it's not debt, it's not relational struggle or strife. It is if you stand apart from Christ, your greatest problem is that you rightly and fully stand condemned under the mighty hand of the Holy God. In light of all this, In light of all that, recognize that slander and sinful judging are not trivial sins. They make one worthy of the eternal justice and wrath of God. They are treason against the holy and hallowed lawgiver and judge of the universe. And we are to see them rightly and fully. But there is good news. Don't miss this part. He's not only able to destroy, he's able to save. And the good news is he's not only able to save, but he's willing and he did. Amen? Romans 3.25 put, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God the Son put on flesh to willingly then take on sin our sin that deserved our eternal punishment so we could receive his righteousness and therefore we could be reconciled to a holy God. Isaiah describes this sacrificial action of Christ on our behalf. In Isaiah 53, 4-7, hundreds of years before it would happen, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. The God-man, Jesus Christ, would die, not just die, but be slaughtered. We were the ones who went astray. He took on my penalty. He substituted himself in my place. That's my penalty. I should have been pierced. I should have been crushed. I should have been wounded unto death. I should pay the eternal wrath due me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 But God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf. He paid our price. He atoned for my sin. It was finished on the cross. The wrath of God is satisfied in this. The justice of God is met in this. The holiness of God is respected in this. Amen? And if you can hear my voice today, repent and believe in Jesus alone for salvation, or stand under the wrath of God, you are not promised tomorrow. I pray you do business with these truths. Galatians 4, 4-5. through When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. God saves. Matthew one twenty one. Colossians 1.13-14 For He, God the Father, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. James 4.12, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Many have judged God's wisdom and will say, Why doesn't he save all? But when we have a right view of our sin before his holiness, we will humbly say, Praise God that he chooses to save any. May it be so for you today. In Jesus' mighty will. Pray with me. Father, I pray that these truths resonate deeply in our souls, that they're not momentary, that we don't let them become passing or fleeting, um, that we would not have casual listening ears, but that you would love us enough to wreck us with these great truths, to draw us to a place of true confession of sin and repentance and in this you are loving us so well that we would loosen our grip on the idols of our lives and the created things we put our hope and our joy in and we would put our grip firmly wholly on you that you would be blessed and honored by who we are not just by a testimony that we claim but by lives that we live We would practice these things you've called us to, that we would turn away from the things that are to be no more as Christ reigns in us. Be glorified by us, Lord. And do your mighty work, not just in this morning, but in the hours and days to come. Not just in us, but through us, for the testimony of the gospel, that it would change lives not just in those visiting this church, but in our homes and our communities and around the city and ultimately to the ends of the earth for your glory, for our joy and for others' eternal good. Hear us now as we sing and savor you in Jesus' name.